This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. The intro's already earned a smirk from the guest, so you know that the guest is going to be good. That's like an ironclad rule. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have maybe my favorite reporter and columnist on the planet. There's a level only like a very few journalists and columnists uh, get to where I'll read literally anything they write. Like it could be an oral history of watching paint dry. I'm in. Bill Simmons hit that level at Grantland. Ross Douthat's New York Times column is currently there. Uh, today's guest is on that list for me. He's been a reporter for The Atlantic, for Business Insider. He's reported from Egypt, Somalia, the Gaza Strip. He's currently a reporter and writer for Tablet Magazine. He is the incomparable Armin Rosen. And we're going to talk all about uh, any manner of crazy things, music, <laughs> literature, state of education, so much more. It's going to be an awesome bloodbath. But uh, first, let's set this bad boy up. So we've been talking lately about the book of Exodus. And as you reflect on it, even just like aesthetically, you start to realize that all of Western storytelling since then, like from the mediocre to the awe-inspiring is just, you know, downstream of it. I mean, even down to today, right? Think about the action movie genre, like the OG car chase scene, complete with special effects. It's Exodus. I mean, Pharaoh and the Egyptians in hot pursuit of the Israelites and the parting of the Red Sea. But of all the compelling things about the book, I'd say its most interesting element is its main character, right? The man himself, Moses. I mean, there's a reason these early books in the Bible become known as the Mosaic books. And in addition to being a legendary lawgiver, teacher par excellence, pivotal figure in Jewish intellectual and legal history, Moses is also just an awesome character. He's got an amazing origin story. He's humble. He's also an extraordinary leader. He's got an interesting family. I mean, he's the whole package. So it's quite interesting then that perhaps one of the most famous exegetical traditions in Jewish history about the book of Exodus takes him entirely out of the story. So I'm thinking specifically about the comment recorded in the Passover Haggadah, the collection of liturgy and biblical exegesis that gets recited every year in the holiday of Passover, that when the Israelites were freed from Egypt, they were taken out not by an angel, not by an intermediary, not by some sort of divinely appointed messenger or prophet, but rather by the Almighty himself directly. And this tradition is found in every single one of the oldest manuscripts of the Haggadah that we have in our possession. Now, look, ultimately everything only happens because God wills it. So at some level of abstraction, there's, you know, there's no disputing with the Passover Haggadah on this point. Yes, it was God himself who liberated the Israelites. But the Haggadah seems to be going out of its way to erase the role that Moses played as God's representative during the Exodus. And what makes this even crazier is that this seems to run counter to several really explicit biblical verses, Exodus 3.10, Numbers 20.16, all of which suggest that, in fact, God intended for people, whether Pharaoh or the Israelites, to see Moses as God's agent in making the Exodus happen. So why downplay the role of Moses when telling the story of the Exodus? Now, commentators scholars and historians across the centuries have offered any number of answers, but here's one that I find particularly attractive. The Exodus was the moment when the Israelites first transformed from objects upon the stage of history into subjects. As slaves in Egypt or earlier as like tribal herdsmen wandering around the Levant, there'd been no need to think programmatically about anything. 
The people of Israel had to figure out things like food, shelter, medicine. They didn't need to have a political philosophy, a theory of art and the image, an immigration policy. But all of a sudden, with the advent of the Exodus and the creation of the Israelite nation, as it were, those things became necessities. Now, most nations never have that moment, that one moment when the weight of national responsibility becomes crystal clear. Most nations throughout history haven't had foundings per se at all. They've just had like strong leaders here and warlords there and alliances here and political marriages there. And eventually a nation with sufficient state capacity eventually just like congeals. And had Moses been allowed to become the protagonist of the Exodus story, Israelite history might have taken that same path. Right, you can easily imagine the rest of the Bible reading like a medieval English chronicle, like just internecine squabbles among Moses' children as they jockeyed with each other for power, or disputes among priests and scholars about how to portray Moses. Like it could take on a very like Song of Ice and Fire vibe pretty quickly. So the Passover Haggadah reminds us that as great as Moses was, the Exodus was not about him. It was nothing less than a moment of national founding an opportunity to think about what kind of society God wanted us to have, what kind of nation we aspire to be, and how we should think about creation and everything within it, and on and on. And certainly, as someone who's grown up with the background that that I have, that's been, you know, the great gift of modern history, right? Thinking biblically or thinking Jewishly or what have you isn't any more forcibly constrained as it has been for so long to matters of internal religious concern, like ritual or liturgy, as deeply important as those and precious as those things are, right? Today, we can and should and must ask questions like, how should we think Jewishly about politics, about literature, about social welfare, about kindness, about higher education, and and, and so on and so forth, and so much more. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to the kinds of writers whose work is animated by this very spirit, right? Like in practice, what does it look like for a descendant of the people of the Exodus to go out into the world and ask the kinds of questions that the Exodus ultimately made possible? How should we think Jewishly about foreign policy or biblically about the Billboard Top 100, about higher education? Are there, I mean, there are very few people doing this kind of writing more vividly and more thoughtfully than our guest today. He's an incredible reporter and writer. He's written for The Atlantic, Business Insider, and now Tablet Magazine. He is the legend himself who's gonna help me unpack all this stuff. He is Armin Rosen. Armin, thank you so much for being here. That is the that is the most generous and most daunting introduction I'm ever gonna get for anything. Wow, where do we even begin? I want to begin with you because, so, okay, there's an earlier stage in my career. I talked about this in like a much earlier episode of the pod when we had Eli Lake on. Big fan of Eli. We love, we're huge fans of the re-education on this pod. So Eli was my old boss. There was a point in my life where like, I just wanted to be a journalist. I just wanted to be a reporter. And what ended up pushing me off that path was I sat down with Eli and I told him that. And Eli, legendary reporter, I told Eli that and he said, amazing. So first thing you need to do is like move to Cairo for a year and just report out of Cairo. And my wife was like, hard pass. So uh, what I've since come to learn, and that was the end of that. So what I've since come to learn is that anyone who does reporting at a high level and who does it, certainly, I mean, there are very few people doing it as well as you, but someone who, who does it at a high level has just had these incredibly unusual experiences like that. So how did you get into reporting? What was that journey like? And what were some of the interesting stops along the way? Great question. I mean, how did I sort of start doing this? Why do I do it? I mean, the, the deflection that I kind of give everyone is that I have one skill and it's writing. That's it. 
And there are a lot of different things you can do with that skill. You can wind up as a lawyer, you can wind up in PR, you can wind up, you know, as any, you know, doing any number of things with it. But in my mind, I feel like everyone who imagines themselves as a writer at the age of like 17 or 18 imagines themselves as a novelist. And I think that those people always think that they have a novel in them somewhere down the line. And journalism seemed like the natural first step on the progression to eventually writing some brilliant work of literature that hasn't arrived yet and maybe never will. But then I learned along the way that reporting is actually just a lot of fun. It's really fun. You have a built-in excuse to talk to nearly anyone and go nearly anywhere. Uh, you get to solve mysteries. You get to be on like a series of little crusades. Some of them uh, very petty and small. Some of them bigger than you expect. Every story kind of uh, goes through different phases. They all change along the way, no matter how big or how small they are. Uh, the whole thing becomes this very interesting kind of adventure in human psychology if you're doing it right, which hopefully hopefully I am. And I, I just kind of found, you know, like when I was in college, certainly when I was in high school, uh, I was, you know, kind of more of these, you know, more of like a yeller and screamer kind of essays type. But by the time you turn like 23 or 24, that gets pretty boring pretty fast. And I kind of came up at a time where people in the industry were kind of socialized on the internet. And there was kind of less of a culture of just kind of picking up the phone, you know, or attending events at think tanks in Washington, just to see who's there, uh, which is something I did during my time at the Atlantic multiple times a week. Uh, and, and then just the job, you know, at its core, the job is about other people. It's about meeting other people. It's about talking to them. It's about attempting and often failing to understand them. Uh, and that's, that's the part of it that I think kind of kept me in. Not that I ever considered going to law school or... God forbid. Cosmo <laughs> Halila entering the rabbit. It, that, never, that never crossed my mind. But if there's anything that really kind of holds my work together as far as giving it any kind of a coherent theme, it's been kind of more about really trying to understand just how bizarre the manifestations of human nature can be. Even at their least intense, they can be very, very strange. Maybe my favorite of all the phrases that you've turned in your reporting career is is your reference to Uman as Jewish Burning Man. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for background, for those of the of the listeners who aren't familiar, one of like maybe the honestly biggest gathering, annual gathering of Jews in one place during the year is in Uman in Ukraine uh, at the grave of the uh, Hasidic rabbi, Rabbi Nachman, founder of the Breslover Hasidic movement. He was an incredibly brilliant teacher and leader, very charismatic, who passed away actually just 38 years old in 1810. And by then he had amassed this incredibly dedicated following. Uh, we could do a whole separate pod on his like intellectual contributions from everything to like thinking about mental health to understanding scientific progress. It was a remarkable, a remarkable intellect. But for now, what I wanted to ask is this, right? Certainly of all the Hasidic teachers and maybe of all Jewish thinkers and leaders, period, Rabbi Nachman has achieved like this really widespread appeal. I mean, you can see his influence or maybe just Breslover paraphernalia, right? In soccer stadiums and prisons, just as much as in synagogues or houses of higher learning. Uh, so do you have a theory of why that is? Like just as like a man on the ground reporter perspective. And what was it like experiencing that when you reported on the pilgrimage to Uman? So my, my theory of, of Rebbe Nachman's wide appeal, I think it's because he represents like, he, he sort of synthesizes two opposite extremes 
on the one hand, there was nobody more stark than Rabbi Nachman, right? This is someone who, according to his Hasidim, like had no fun his entire life. He enjoyed nothing. He didn't even like eating. You know, that was just at, at a lower level. He was at a much higher level than any of that. He didn't drink. He was never drunk. You know, he followed the mitzvot as intensely as he possibly could. Nobody could ever accuse him of, of taking anything lightly in life, period. On the other hand, his ideas really are built around the realization that not everyone can reach that level and that anyone who wants to reach that level is necessarily starting from a very low point and that all human beings in general are starting from the same point, more or less, in whatever kind of spiritual journey they're on. So his, his thought can be sort of very rigid on the one hand, but also you know, just kind of like bursting with possibility and, and understanding uh, of people as they really are. And I think he understood that you needed you needed both, right? You needed uh, both kind of an example, uh, you know, to remind you that, you know, hey, this, you know, all that all the spiritual stuff is actually going in a direction. It's not like you're, you know, supposed to sort of run around in the woods, and talk to God willy nilly. You're supposed to run in the woods, you know, and talk to God for a reason uh, as, as part of a, you know, a longer spiritual arc that, that you are on. But he believed that anybody could walk that path. Uh, and he, his, in his work at least, and certainly in a lot of the practice, the, the, the breast lovers that I saw in Uman, there's very little judgment attached to any of it. And I think that's why you see, you know, people finding breast log Hasidism in Israeli prisons, for example. There's, there's very little element of judgment uh, considering how, to many people, rigid the religious system is. Not, I'm saying it's rigid, but some, some would. Uman itself kind of reflects those two poles really quite perfectly. It's this amazing gathering of people. Uh, you know, it's almost like one of these all, uh, you know, kind of utopian settings where anybody you meet, you know, everybody you meet there wants to talk to you. You know, everyone's a potential friend. You know, half the conversations you have there just veer off into really crazy directions about, you know, Torah or Hasidus or basic nature of reality. Uh, as I mentioned in my article, the whole thing takes place over a mass grave, actually a series of mass graves from uh, you know, the 1600s through World War II. So just the setting alone is, is kind of very intense and very special. On the other hand, like you're there for Rosh Hashanah, right? You daven for six or seven hours a day. You know, you're woken up by people saying sleepless at 4.30 in the morning. None of the accommodation is comfortable, right? Uh, it's difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be, again, a religious pilgrimage, which is exactly what it is. It's not a party. It's not really a party at all. This is kind of the, the number one thing that people get wrong about it. But it's not a typical Rosh Hashanah synagogue either. I mean, one thing that that fascinated me about it was precisely that element. Like it's it's situated quite deliberately on a mass grave, right? It's, it's sort of you know like Rabbi Nachman's act of solidarity with the victims of Cossack violence. There, it ends up becoming the site of of other massacres, like massacres of Jews throughout the ages. And what struck me is that it really does have this kind of party vibe, like Burning Man, like you know, like a less corporate Coachella, yeah. <laughs> right? Have you been or? <laughs> no, not yet. But, but emphasis on yet, right? <laughs> Clear that with your wife. I, by the way, I know. Like, I don't, I don't know what she would prefer, Uman or Cairo. But the <laughs> many would prefer <laughs> Cairo, actually. Uman is still very controversial. 
any service. Yeah. I mean, like, look, there's like techno music blaring. Like it has that festival vibe. And if that were what it was, to me, it would kind of be like totally unremarkable because, you know, what makes this fish concert different from all other fish concerts? But the fact that it is so proximate and deliberately proximate to death, to mass death, to murder, to graves, there's something there that reminds you that adolescence and exuberance are actually not synonymous, right? Like there's there's a tendency for people to look upon any act of like youthful exuberance as, as synonymous with immaturity. And yet I think that's a mistake, right? That's like a, it's an, a mistake in cultural analysis, right? Like when you look at Uman and you see all of that youthful exuberance and yet you realize how comfortable it is and how embracing it is of human impermanence and of finality, right? Does that, does that perhaps tell us something about like a power in, in youth culture and in, and in party culture that you might otherwise miss if you were either, you know, coming from this sort of austere, you know, George Willian angle of like, pull up your pants, or that you might miss from like the just, you know, it's partying and it's all good, you know, hippie culture element. Well, people, people experience the most profound joy of their entire lives. Uman. I mean, they experience things in Uman that they don't experience in Yerushalayim. Even. Right, in Jerusalem. I think part of that, I mean, there are all kinds of potential reasons for that, but the proximity to death, I think, is, is kind of a huge part of it, actually. And if you think about it, like all of life is very proximate to death. Uh, it's something, right, it's right. something that Judaism is kind of acutely aware of from the very beginning. Uh, you know, the, the first thing that, that Avraham purchases in, uh, you know, in Eretz Israel is a tomb. Right. In Genesis, Abraham buys the burial site for Sarah. Yeah. Right. Great troubles are gone to to make sure that the people who are supposed to be buried in that tomb are buried in that tomb. Right. I mean, Judaism and, and all sorts of other cultures derive kind of this great meaning from like the proximity of, of the dead, of physical dead people who, you know, represent continuity and earlier generations, history and eternity in some sense. In, in Uman, it's all kind of very literalized because you are surrounding a tomb, you know, and you're surrounding a tomb that exists, that is in that spot, as you said, because of an earlier massacre of Jews, and that actually became the site of later massacres of Jews during World War II. But it's not as if everybody's kind of running around emphasizing, uh, you know, the fact that you're standing over, literally over the bones of murdered Jews, even though apparently if it rains enough, uh, in Uman, that you actually see human remains. Nobody emphasizes that at all. It's not that it's far out of people's minds. It's just that maybe the connection between uh, joy and death, in a way, is so kind of innately baked into us that it weirdly makes sense for an event like that to happen in a place like that, in a way. And something that uh, kind of just popped into my head when you were kind of asking that question is that, uh, you know, there's real proximity between. Uh, you know, death and joy, even just at the level of, you know, what a lot of people would consider to be mindless pop culture. If you look on Rap Caviar right now on Spotify, they're... Oh, that's why, that's why I was going next. You anticipated it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, Juice World had a feature on the last Trippy Red album that came out a week ago. I mean, he's been putting out stuff from Beyond the Grave for three years by now. Um, I saw him perform live, by the way, at Bonner. Um, it was kind of blown away. I mean, he was dead six months later. 
It's crazy. You know, and the whole the whole thing in retrospect feels kind of very hot. Uh, you know, I wrote something about Juice World's death for uh, I think Art Digital, kind of right after it happened. You know, I mentioned you know in retrospect this is this is a, a guy who was carrying death around in his head. In retrospect, in a way that was kind of obvious. You know, and it's not just him. I mean, it's probably a half dozen or even a dozen kind of leading hip hop artists have died at you know disgustingly young ages in the last few years especially i mean yeah i mean look Nip- nipsey hustles another i mean like the i guess this dates this will date me a little bit but one of the earliest pop culture memories that i have like as in the earliest like along with disney movies was the death of kurt cobain and then you kind of you know and smells like teen spirit is like you know sort of infamously now kind of uh, or famously now just use this like a pump up song to get athletes ready. You know what I mean? So like, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Now I'll tell you, I, I am really militant as any of my friends will tell you, I'm really militant about who I follow on Twitter. And I like regularly am going through my Twitter follows and just like cutting the fat uh, and like justifying, you know, does, is this person still belong on here? And I find that doing that gives you a real, opportunity to kind of file away the people that you're following on Twitter into different boxes, right? So, and and I'm always fascinated by the people who fall into more than one box, right? Like I, I sometimes, at least in my own, for my own, you know, Twitter activity, I kind of think of it as like, it's bad for brand building, but I think it's super intellectually interesting. So in your case, right, there's like the reporting, there's political commentary, but there's also music. Yeah. And I find some of your most insightful writing commentaries on music. And one question I, I've longed to ask you Uh-oh. is, is there, is there, <laughs> is, this is not a hard one, <laughs> I, I don't think, but it's, but to me, it's, it's, it's a meaningful one, right? Like, is there, is there a genre of music or maybe a particular band or a particular song that you feel that your particular background, right? That maybe your Jewishness helps you get in a way that others might not, or might not as much. Like, for me, it's hip-hop as a whole, right? Like, the intertextuality of it. Well, I mean, one that came up just the other day in the car, right? Like, Kendrick Lamar in King Kunta off to, Butter- off to Pimp a Butterfly, where you get these constant, subtle, intertextual references to the big payback by James Brown, right? He says, I'm mad, or I can dig rapping. And once you spot those references, much like in biblical analysis, it unlocks this whole new layer of meaning, right? So what is it for you? I mean, hip-hop, I got uh, sort of into... Um, actually at like a very kind of young age, when I was like 10 or 11, mostly from listening to one or then later both of the local hip hop stations in DC. Um, I mean, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland in kind of the, uh, you know, not like the Bethesda nice part of the DC suburbs. Uh, let's call it, you know, kind of like the, the lower end of the upper middle class side of the DC suburbs. So, I, you know, I went to, I went to public high you know, public school my whole life, places that were extremely, you know, very diverse. Uh, and where you inevitably got exposed to whatever was happening on those two hip hop stations, like almost everywhere, you know, the school bus, the store. You grew up with like literally the same hip hop education as like Dave Chappelle. In a, in a way, I mean, oh. well, in a very different way. <laughs> also Silver Spring Resident. Right, right. Or Tacoma Park, one of, one of the two. Uh, you know, so, right. So, right, so there was like a time in my life when I was about 10 years old uh, where, you know, you would hear a song off of the miseducation of Lauren Hill like every 20 minutes on one of these stations. Like literally every 20, it was like the biggest, you know, there's time where I thought like, you know, that Lauren Hill was almost the only recording artist in existence for, for a time. You could be convinced <laughs> of that. I mean, as far as like what is, you know, the, the aspects of hip hop that would draw Jews in other than the fact that, 
I mean, this is this has changed in a huge way in the last 20 years, but at least for the first kind of few decades, hip hop was like a very recognizably kind of urban form, right? It began in cities, it emanated outwards from, you know, places like, you know, the South Bronx. And Jews, uh, even as we moved to the suburbs, we remained clustered around cities, around places where hip hop was becoming kind of the dominant sound. I mean, the other the other aspect of this is that hip hop is was and is basically the, it's a music of social outsiders, and that this is something that fans of hip hop don't really like to emphasize uh, because it almost sounds like a slur. I mean, I consider it like a compliment. You know, punk was the music of social outsiders. Blues was the music of basically like quasi homeless bards kind of wandering from town to town uh, in literally the poorest part of America. You know, it's outlaw music. It is there is something proudly and fiercely antisocial about hip hop, and this is something that that I could understand. You know, it's like when I, you know, my family finally got cable when I was like a sophomore in high school, which meant that I could finally start watching <laughs> music videos. Right, I go to MTV, uh, excuse me, MTV jams. You know, I ended up watching like you know, spending hours just playing ping pong with uh, you know hip hop videos in the background. And around that time, like two thousand four, two thousand five. Right, there was almost this competition to make these videos as gaudy as possible. Right, you know, like grills on the teeth and like you know these ridiculous throwback jerseys from Mitchell and Ness that were like five sizes too big. SUVs with like platinum rims and everything, complete, just completely over the top. And it was just, it was just so obvious, like on an instinctive level, that the whole thing is like a little bit of a put on. Right, like the idea that within the American class system. There's like nothing more gauche than kind of like flaunting your newfound wealth in exactly that way. Exactly. It's like a vaudeville take almost on on wealth. Right. It's like know. an inversion. That's like, okay, we're going to do the thing that you're not supposed to do. And we're going to look extremely right. cool doing it. And also it's going to be really funny when you do it. Right. There's going to be some actual kind of irony in there. One of the weirder developments, I think, in hip hop and in America and capitals more broadly is that it's kind of, at least at its top, at the very kind of top level of the art form, it's really kind of no longer outsider music. It's almost music that kind of reinforces the power structure in a way. Like you have rappers who are billionaires now. Like when at any point in history have you ever had artists who are billionaires? Like in the midst of like, the you know, the productive point in their career. How does that kind of warp and how they view the world? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. We'll find out. Like typically when you had artists achieving that sort of fame, it was like people with the wealthiest patrons, right? Who exactly. were like making music for like the Doge of, of Venice, you know? <laughs> right. Artists were usually poor. Like rappers were usually, you know, I, I went to uh, Rx Pappy's first show post-prison release probably about maybe a month ago. And you know, I was out with some people afterwards, the hip hop writers who know the stuff better than I do. And one of them pointed out that like, if you listen to Pappy's music, like a lot of it's like very low stakes, you know, it's about, you know, bags of cocaine under the mattress and like relatively modest sized bricks of cash, and, you know, who's going to control right. this corner in this project in like Rochester, right? That, that was kind of the concern of the music for a while. It's, uh, you know, a reflection of kind of observed reality and life experience. Well, the observed reality and life experience of someone, uh, you know, he's not worth that much anymore. But like Kanye West was worth like $6 billion at one point. I mean, what, there's a lot that you could say about that. But artists have never been worth that much at any point in human history. I personally think that's kind of the reason that Rihanna hasn't made any music for a while. 
Like she's legitimately a self-made multi-billionaire because of her kind of cosmetics line, which is amazing. But what do you do with that artistically? It's, no one knows. It's, un, it's uncharted territory. And by the way, you could talk about, you, you could probably trace a single similar kind of progression with Jews. I mean, we also kind of went from being a kind of underclass to eventually being perhaps too wealthy and powerful for our own good, one might be able to say. You're like totally anticipating exactly everywhere that I want to go with this. That was literally the next place I wanted to go. <laughs> but if I could add one more thing outside of hip hop, I mean, I'm really drawn to rock bands that have like a religious aspect to them that people who care about religion can hear, but that other people can't. I mean, my kind of favorite example, the kind of tragic example, of this is the, the band Low, the pioneering slowcore rock band Low, which was a husband and wife team, a Mormon husband and wife rock band to have been basically married since their early 20s, put out a series of like some of the absolute greatest albums I think ever made. Uh, the wife, Mimi Parker, died, I guess this was like three months ago. It feels longer ago than that. It's a huge loss for music, I'd say. But they have a handful of songs that are like very obviously about their own religious faith, including a lot of their last album. And these are songs that work as just songs about kind of like the human condition and human struggle. But they, they have one in particular called Holy Ghost that uh, really kind of gets me almost every time. Which again is like a very kind of identifiably goyish way of looking at metaphysics and such. But, you know, there is like, try as we might, there's kind of no way of suppressing kind of the, the religious impulse in people and in artists, even in something like indie rock, which is about, or used to be about the kind of as godless, uh, kind of rebellious kind of walk of life as you can find. I've thought about it, by the way, like if you think about, in, just to go back to Kendrick Lamar for a minute, if you think about the transition from like his first major album is Good Kid, Mad City, like the one that gets big, that's, I mean, that's like, I mean, life in Compton. Right. It's just like a, a really frightening story. And it and it ends, it both like kind of like begins and ends with an with a religious conversion, right? Like with basically a baptism. To Pimp a Butterfly is where he's grappling with that problem that you've identified, which is like, you've achieved all this unbelievable fame. Yeah. Like now what? And it's not a surprise to me at all that that album, and especially the following album, damn is just, I mean, very explicitly and often just grappling with the Bible. Yes. Because once you've achieved a level of commercial success, that kind of takes you out of the prosaic circumstances that got you where you were in the first place all of a sudden you need to ask yourself, okay, like what are things that I can grapple with that are bigger than where I am now? And it seems to me that the, I mean, to the extent that the biggest things in life are metaphysical, spiritual truths, maybe the stories of the Bible, certainly in the history of the West, I mean, where else are you going to go? Right. right. Like it's not a, it's not a surprise to me in that respect that everyone's always just coming back to the Bible. Yeah. And the answer for Kendrick was to disappear for five years. And like, he really yeah. actually kind of did it you know, very few, like one or two features, neither of them on big albums particularly, didn't put out any singles, put out like no singles in the run-up to Mr. Morale, didn't tour. No one really knew what he was doing, which should be impossible in this day and age. He basically kind of like vanished at the height of his fame and the height of his powers, like after winning a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and the album he came up with, I thought was one very kind of marked by his kind of refusal to really submit to other people's 
there's, you know, expectations of him, right? I mean, he emerged from it. I mean, there is absolutely no pandering to anyone or anything on Mr. Morale, right? There are very few big bangers. You know, he basically spends half the album insisting that people don't really understand him. There's the, the inclusion of Kodak Black on a bunch of songs, which I think is like the key to the whole thing. And also sort of a quasi-religious angle on it because it's almost as if he's found someone who he's going to publicly redeem in a sense. Like, you know, he's, it's not like he put just any old kind of canceled musician at the center of his record. You know, he put a musician who was canceled for something fairly serious, who's also kind of wildly popular and also kind of misunderstood, right? Someone who's, you know, not to like be kind of too more reductive about it, but I think Kendrick views him as almost like a more kind of hood version of what Kendrick himself became as if, you know, as if Kodak is the one who's sort of still in, in touch with like the roots of what Kendrick sort of used to be in a way. Like, I think the whole key to the album is this one kind of throwaway line where, where uh, Kendrick says, uh, you know, I'm not pro black, I'm pro Kodak black. Like that's it. He's in, he's in favor of this, uh, you know, kind of expression you know, of, of this very kind of, again, problematic person who reflects something that Kendrick sees in himself. And, and the album is kind of an attempt to redeem that and to sort of argue for its value against a society that, again, has made Kodak uh, a bit of a pariah, but also wildly popular at the same time. And I want to come back to some of those themes in a second. Oh, there's so many ways to go with this. Okay, all right. So I got to choose. We got to choose one path, right? But I, but I want to come back to those <laughs> themes in a second. We, we, we must. So to shift gears for a second before we come back, there's a tendency to treat the Jews in America as if that's a coherent minority group. And like, yes, we know there are different types of Jews, but mostly, right, so the conventional wisdom goes, you know, that's important to insiders, but outsiders can kind of just like safely think of American Jewry as a thing. And for analytical purposes, that that would suffice. But lately, I've seen people even outside the Jewish community, like most recently, I think it was just like this past week or maybe even this week in polling by YouGov, starting to give more credence to the idea that American Jews, that rather that that Orthodox Jews should really be looked at as a group with like fundamentally different tendencies, preferences, and challenges and opportunities than the rest of the American Jewish community. And, you know, look, as for me, I think it's probably analytically more accurate to include in the category along with Orthodox Jews, right, like those Jews who invest a good deal of daily time taking their tradition and heritage seriously and thinking about it. But but either way, have you seen this kind of analytical division manifesting in your reporting work, right? Like, is this division a thing? What kind of explanatory power does it have? Great question i think it has quite a lot the orthodox my, not to speak for them but just just for my own kind of observation i mean they live in a world that they have sort of created for themselves and it's it's this you know amazing kind of cradle to grave community where at every point in life not just the level of like where your kids educated but the level of like where you where do you do your grocery shopping where do you go the first thing in the morning Orthodox communities in America managed to create that. That did not exist, by the way, 40 or 50 years ago. It's interesting. I interviewed... When was this? Two days ago? So I interviewed Mitchell Silk, uh, who is the only Senate-confirmed undersecretary in the history of the U.S. government of a Hasidic Jewish background. 
really brilliant guy. He was uh, Trump's undersecretary for international trade or something at the Treasury Department. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. Like he speaks fluent Chinese. He like quoted Chinese <laughs> classical poetry off the top of his head in Chinese. He's helping put out a translation of Bertie Chigurh Rebbe's Torah commentaries, which Art Scroll is publishing. I don't know. He's one of these just like amazing people. And he was talking about how, you know, when he was growing up in Chicago, you didn't have that Jewish infrastructure. You know, you didn't really have like yeshivas and shuls and mikvahs in the same way. The community was too new. People hadn't, you know, gotten the kind of high paying jobs yet, like they would 20 or 30 years later running businesses and so on in order to sustain that kind of a community. Uh, and it's, it's a real sort of accomplishment of Orthodox Jews in America to have created what they have, uh, again, in a society that's not always really conducive to that. At the same time, you know, and this is a point that I love banging on about in all kinds of different contexts, there's more connection between the Orthodox and non-Orthodox communities than either side would like to acknowledge at a given time. Every single Torah and every single mezuzah in existence was like written by an Orthodox Jew, probably. Most of them. Nearly all of them. Every single shochei, right, is an Orthodox Jew, mostly. <laughs> right? You have kosher food because that's an entire infrastructure that's, that's run by the Orthodox. At the same time, whatever sort of broader cultural power Jews have in America doesn't really come exclusively from the Orthodox. You know, Steven Spielberg is not an Orthodox Jew, just to, just to take one kind of crude example. You know, the governor of Pennsylvania keeps kosher, but I don't think he identifies as Orthodox <laughs> either, right? Right, right. Tablet is run by, you know, we have Orthodox Jews who help run Tablet, but it's not an Orthodox institution by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. Although we do have the holidays off, to be clear, <laughs> to all potential Tablet donors, they don't make us work on any other. So there, yeah, there's, there's a certain, and, and by the way, the existence of, you know, a very vibrant Orthodox society depends on the existence of, you know, a very large, influential, more liberal Jewish community in ways that neither side really recognizes in a way. And at the same time, more liberal Jews don't tend to really appreciate how different Jewish life in America would be if the Orthodox were not as successful, let's say, as they currently are. And one kind of sign of that um, is that like when I was a kid, uh, you know, growing up in a conservative slash reconstructionist synagogue, you know, it was kind of very unusual for to see like an art scroll book anywhere. And when you saw it, you kind of know like, oh, like, you know, my parents would say like, oh, that's that's for like the real the real frumies, you know, use that. That's what we don't use today. <laughs> I mean, you find art scroll books outside of Orthodox contexts like everywhere. I mean, probably most reform schools have like an art scroll book somewhere, in, right? It's not right, considered right. odd in the least. And that's a change. That's a, that's a positive, it's a positive change. You just wrote an absolutely fascinating profile for Tablet Magazine of Lee Bollinger, the uh, longtime president of Columbia University who's about to retire, I believe, after one of the longest, most successful careers as a university president basically ever, and who along the way, in my view, <laughs> and I think in yours, just did like horrific, maybe irreversible damage to Columbia's like moral and intellectual value and to the enterprise of like American higher education as a whole. But the first thing that I was struck by 
is you recalled an incident that I remember being obsessed with at the time and that I had totally forgotten about, which was the 2007 hosting at Columbia University of, at the time, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And the way that Bollinger had handled that, what struck me looking back on that event, because Bollinger, like kind of famously or infamously, depending on how you looked at it, introduced uh, Ahmadinejad. And what struck me kind of looking back on the whole thing is how weird the whole thing seems by the standards of today's discourse. Like I remember <laughs> yeah. at the time thinking, right, like what happened just to recap was that he invites Ahmadinejad, who both by current and then standards was just like a lunatic, um, just deeply anti-Semitic, you know, regularly made kind of genocidal comments. Um, Holocaust denier, et cetera, et cetera. A Holocaust denial on steroids, exactly. And at the time, there was like an outcry. And the way that Bollinger responded was by having the event, hosting him, but by introducing him and shredding him, basically. Like, like basically giving him a really, like, an introduction that made it clear that he thought that he was just like a vile person. <laughs> and I again, I remember at the time thinking that Bollinger was like an absolute coward. And reading it for like hosting it. right but reading it in in 2023 i'm like what he did again just descriptively sounds like what today might get described as like a win for liberalism right and discourse right well he thought it was a win for liberalism and discourse actually i don't know what he thought i don't know what he thought i think <laughs> and this, this was sort of like a little bit too deep in the weeds to go into with the piece All but right. he had that whole thing kind of foisted upon him like, I don't think anybody, you know, at Low Library was super eager for this event to happen. Uh, but an invitation was brokered. It was apparently brokered through a professor in the Middle Eastern Studies Department named Richard Bullitt, uh, who had contacts with Ahmadinejad's people. Columbia, in theory, has an open invitation for anybody visiting for the opening of the UN General Assembly to speak there. Could Bollinger have gotten it canceled without any real public outcry? Of course he could have. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's obviously something you could have gotten someone to give an opinion that just like for security or logistical reasons, the event couldn't happen. What, whatever. It right. could, have, could have just dreamed something up. You could have taken the procedural way out. Right. But right? he didn't. He made an affirmative decision in a weird way that this event had to happen. And he made it, you know, for sort of like the liberal reasons that you explain. I also think that. The, the event was kind of a demonstration of Bollinger's like very specific and very odd kind of views on free speech. So Bollinger is a pioneer of what's uh, what's called tolerance theory of free speech, which justifies free speech not through like natural rights or, or you know the idea that like these rights come from God and that abridging them is you know a sacrilege or whatever, um, and not even through sort of like any kind of reference to any social contract but through the idea that allowing aggressive speech to happen, we, it's an opportunity for society to prove how tolerant it is, basically. And it, it sort of reinforces and strengthens a sense of openness by allowing disgusting speech to continue. Now, if you really think about this for a second, it's kind of a bizarre and almost like very recognizably Protestant idea of free speech, right? The idea that like, the people who are tolerating the speech get to publicly perform just how tolerant they are. 
which proves their own sort of superiority and like quasi electedness, you know, in the presence of the unwashed masses, <laughs> right? Right. Like, as Antonio Garcia Martinez might put it, you know, it's ultimately a reenactment of the founding story of the of the Gospels. Right? Yes. Like, it's that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Like being willing to suffer this to like suffer this terrible, terrible speech is itself virtue. Right. And I'm sure I'm positive that Bollinger would doesn't see it that way and didn't intend for it. Right. For his ideas to have any sort of those types of resonances. But look, we live in the United States of America. We have a whole system of of law and uh, custom, which is kind of very much rooted in a certain Protestant tradition at a certain place in time. You know, these ideas are bound to come out. And I think he believed that he was throwing just such a reenactment of the Gospels on the Columbia campus with Ahmadinejad as the star. And it was one that like just so happened to confirm Columbia's status, you know, as a global institution, as a place where world leaders, you know, would frequently come uh, you know, as a real kind of center of, you know, institutional power in the United States. And as a result of following his heart, Bollinger publicly humiliated himself, did a certain amount of damage to his view of the institution and of free speech more generally. Um, and from this experience, he learned to kind of shut his mouth uh, to solve problems before they began. He learned that he should focus on real estate acquisition, which is something he was really, really good at. What he did with that real estate is awful. The Manhattanville campus, um, <laughs> again, is like almost like a physical manifestation of like the Bollinger idea of things, right? It's, you know, all of these just absolutely hideous buildings that have absolutely no, you know, no architectural connection to what surrounds them, built by like a very overrated and probably overpriced, you know, foreign architect, Renzo Piano. It doesn't, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like a character from The Simpsons, to be honest. <laughs> right, not to be like xenophobic about it, but like, you know, every single Renzo piano building everywhere on earth looks exactly the same. Like, these are not structures that are made for right. somewhere. These are structures that are made for anywhere, for the, the eternal, endless nowhere that is everywhere these days. It's like the great ambition to turn all university libraries into Terminal C at Newark Airport. Exactly. Or to turn everything into Terminal C, right? We have a seamless existence, a continuity of Terminal Cs kind of wherever we go. <laughs> uh, you know, glass and like sunlight, uh, you know, and lots of iron bars and like absolutely no ornamentation of any kind. It's awful. Like the Manhattanville campus is like an aesthetic crime. And like, it's, it's this kind of shows my own kind of weirdly pre-modern instincts, but like, you know, if you knock stuff down, you can kind of justify knocking it down if you build something cool over it. I mean, right up the street from me in Gowanus, uh, there is an amazing old mason hall, I think. It's either a church or a Masonic lodge. You know, it's got like a vaulted ceiling and it's got, you know, a big alpha and omega over the entrance. Uh, and it has like these amazing friezes over the entryway. It's on, I want to say it's on 13th Street between 4th and 5th Avenue in Park Slope. Naturally, the whole thing is behind plywood. It's getting demolished in like two weeks. Incredible. <laughs> uh, you know, just like a piece of, of heritage that'll, you know, it's about to be gone. Now, like, I don't know what you're supposed to do with a building like that that block in a hot neighborhood. Probably from a utilitarian standpoint, it's better to tear it down. I don't know. But, you know, it's like, it's like uh, to get back to the beginning of our conversation about the importance of, you know, having an awareness of the physical presence of the dead. You know, the costs of severing a place off from itself can only really be known in the long run. And they're almost never 
good. I mean, it's funny because just to come back to, to Bollinger and Ahmadinejad for a second, I think in some ways it kind of illustrates the impasse that we've reached now, right? Like, weirdly enough, and if I'm, again, maybe I'm misremembering, but I do not remember a strong faction like you would like you have online on Twitter now. Like, now there's a strong kind of, like, defensive liberalism cohort right. on Substack, on Twitter, and I have so much, I really do, like, genuinely have a lot of sympathy for these people who are, like the response to offensive speech is more speech is counter speech is argumentation. And, you know, we're losing kind of the great bastions of liberalism are crumbling and, and our discourse is in disarray. And I had totally forgotten about this manifestation of that very dispute back in 2007. I actually do not remember that constituency rearing its head at all. Like, had that constituency been around, they would have been all in for Bollinger, right? Because that's what Bollinger was doing. Right. But but it's ridiculous to think that Ahmadinejad was on Columbia's campus as like a free speech demonstration. Like that was kind of an ex post facto thing that happened to jive with a lot of Bollinger's beliefs. He was there right. because of a combination of like institutional self-aggrandizement as uh, you know, manifested through the World Leaders Forum, which was the event that invited him, um, and through faculty kind of freelancing to get this awful man on campus. <laughs> well, and that and that's the thing. Like to the extent that I have a critique of the the defensive liberalism folks today, and again, like I said, I have so much sympathy for them, and I see them as like in many ways fellow travelers. Yeah. To the extent that I have a critique of them, my strong like you know a strong critique, the critique would be. The idea that America is a bastion of liberalism, one where, you know, you can respond to offensive speech with counter speech, the idea that that America as a haven for that sort of liberalism, unsupported by anything else, is a pipe dream and, in fact, has never existed. American, the strength of, of American liberalism has always drawn its support from America's religious convictions, the the sense that it has always kind of like believed in something and has had values that have transcended its procedural commitments. And you can almost see kind of like de Tocqueville as one of the early spotters of this, right? Because de Tocqueville calls out American liberalism's compatibility with religion as like an odd feature of American life. Like, how do you have, you have this, you know, highly progressive democratic society that at the same time is so deeply conservative and religious. And he, he treats it as if it's this weird paradox that needs to be solved as opposed to actually the precise explanation for why America was able to be so good at both of those things is because those things kind of fed each other. Right. And American higher education was traditionally, since before the American Revolution, the the citadel protecting those both of those things, right? Uh, capital L liberalism and kind of like good theological knowledge, biblical literacy, you know, religious education. And the Ivies in particular were, were always those things, Yale, Harvard, Columbia. And what you found by 2007 was that, you know, to the extent that there was a good reason to keep Ahmadinejad off campus, it was because it's just the things that he believes is that he believes is like incompatible with the the values that we can make very clear we believe in at Columbia University. But you know, by like 
the early, like late nineties and early two thousands, Columbia, like much of American higher education had surrendered any like commitment right. to anything in particular. Yes. And so <laughs> there was no reason to keep them off. Right. There was like no reason to keep them off campus other than like, it would be very inconvenient to have him here and have it blow up in a big yes. way. Right. So like, you know, like Bollinger's like the last gasp in many ways of like, of like, no, we believe in speech for procedural reasons. Right. And right. We worship our procedural God, right? Like, I almost worry that Bollinger in 2007 already exposed why the liberalism and liberalism alone people, as much as I really want them to be right, are kind of doomed to fail in some ways. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's right. And at the same time, if you get too hung up on proceduralism uh, or too sort of attached, you know, to arguments based on kind of the social function of free speech, it's very easy to kind of turn those into anti-free speech arguments. Maybe right. the procedure doesn't work. Maybe the machine has to be slightly tinkered with. Uh, oh, actually, we do care about social, you know, oh, the social impact is negative now. It turns out that we aren't that tolerant. Well, that's too bad. Uh, I guess we're going to have to right, shift our right. speech norms. And then, you know, suddenly you're in a position where it's unclear what we're supposed to kind of value as a democratic society at the end of the day, which I think is kind of, sort of close to where we are in some respects, unfortunately. So, like, I know this sounds weird, but I, I often think of, like, first century Judea. <laughs> uh, I often think of first century <laughs> Judea as well, as we all should. Exactly. I mean, you watch Monty Python, it's hard to not. Uh, but I often think of it as like a helpful way to understand the current moment in American political life. Like just and which to be serious for a second, like when you think about it, it's not that weird, right? It's the most consequential century in human history. But, you know, what happens at that time is you have a society, you have two societies, right, that have convinced themselves that the great cataclysmic battle on the horizon between, you know, Jewish rebels and Roman you know, imperial power is a battle between good and evil, between civilization and barbarism, and all of those things are at stake. And, you know, the the people leading the charge on one side represent, you know, the side of light and the people leading the charge on the other side represent darkness. But a huge part of what it turns out in reality, I mean, it's not necessarily incompatible with that, but what turns out to have been a major factor of the clash between Rome and Jerusalem is actually just like decades of misrule by mid-level bureaucrats, right? Like the <laughs> yeah. prefects and eventually, right? And eventually the procurators who are just like these middle managers who totally screw up Roman governance policy in Judea. <laughs> and today, right, we like to think about today's political climate is like horribly politicized with different visions for society battling it out. But what's really going on, or at least what's going on to a large extent is just the elevation and expanding power of middle managers, right? Like Bollinger seemed to me such a good illustration of this, right? Yes. He was just like a fantastic middle manager who was given like full power over Columbia, uh, like over one of the classic institutions of American higher education. And maybe you could also think of the rise of like DEI, like diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants and yeah. bureaucrats as just like the rise of the new American procurator. So how much does that explain where we are currently? I, it explains quite a bit. It's obviously not my theory, but the whole idea of like the fact that there's an overabundance of elites basically and that they have to be warehoused somewhere. I mean, I think it just, it explains so much, right? Right. I like that. You know, you have an overproduction of lawyers, overproduction of PhDs, 
there's like insufficient real demand for for elites, right. right? And, and also, like, just a thing that people forget about like the human race and the world in general that I find myself thinking about like all the time is that like we have the largest population of human beings ever at this point, and like for many thousands of years of human history, the global population was like you know a few billion people. And like, if you've been alive since, you know, someone who's like 90 years old has seen the human population like double, more than double. I'm not saying this is bad. It's good. I'm a great believer that the more people, the better. And that probably the planet can right. sustain 10 billion people with current technology. That's, that's all great. But we have to like really keep in mind that that's a major break. It's a major discontinuity with the rest of human history. And that actually everything from here on out is completely uncharted territory in a lot of respects. I mean, everything from here on out is always uncharted territory, but like this is uncharted territory plus another 6 billion human beings running around. And like, what are the weird sort of manifestations of that going to be? Part of it is that in a society like the United States, uh, one that is sort of set up around a myth of social mobility, you need to have an actual kind of pipeline of social mobility and markers of achievement that everybody can kind of recognize. Uh, the highest such marker, basically universities have been set up as like the credentialing institutions to determine who sort of deserves to move upwards. In theory, in practice, it's all completely kind of out the window. But if you funnel, you know, in an America of 300 odd million people, which again is also a historic anomaly, you know, you're squeezing kind of a lot of people through a credentialing system that isn't necessarily needed to fill kind of the critical sort of functioning mechanisms of society itself. And you just, you just need a place to put them all, right? Where do you, know, where do you, where do you put them? Right. <laughs> like, I can't imagine getting a master's in public policy for any reason. Like, I'll never do it. And I don't get why people do. But there are probably, like, millions of people with MPPs in America. And, like, just where, where do they go? What do they do? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and they all sort of expect to make, like, 100 $50,000 a year. And there's money to pay them, interestingly. And the truth is, like, historically, right, whether it's, I mean, the French Revolution, whether it's the 48ers in Germany, whether it's whatever, like, elite discontent or kind of like middle elite discontent, not like upper elite, right? But like, kind of like mid-level elite discontent is always a, a bad sign. Right. And the elites always kind of like imagine themselves as having this kind of vaguely praetorian role or whatever system they're in, like they believe that, you know, they should sort of, they're very unreflective about the question of whether they're the ones who should be wielding power or not. One kind of great thing about religion and Judaism in particular, I think, uh, is that it actually does sort of make you think about your own kind of fitness to, to lead. And by the way, this goes back to the Parsha, Moshe. Moshe is constantly saying, no, it's not me. I can't do this. I don't get why you think I can do it. Perhaps someone else should do it, right? That's kind of you know, it's a it's a self critical sort of mode of understanding the impulse to control people, and it's decentralization is a huge part right. of that, right? Like there's there's no there's no ecclesiastical hierarchy, right? Right? Or ecclesiolog ecclesiological hierarchy. Yeah, and and I mean the idea of like being you know some kind of like campus DEI commissar who kind of sits down and creates rules for how like you know massive you know, very kind of like theoretical groups of people are supposed to treat each other. And it, it's laughable. It's just such a, you know, just it's such a conceited kind of mode of existing. And yet it's an industry 
that's worth billions upon billions of dollars a year. And like, I think one of the things that's comfortable about journalism is that I don't have to tell anyone what to do. Like, I don't, I don't desire that. I'm surprised whenever anybody even reads me. It's like, great, you've spent, you know, you've chosen, affirmatively chosen to spend X amount of your life reading me. That's great. But it's not my job to cram it down people's, to cram that or anything down anybody's throat, which I like. So I want to, I, I suppose, ask one more question, which is one of the things that I so enjoy about, about following you is I will be able to find in the things that you enjoy a thing that I can kind of recommend to myself, a piece of culture I can recommend to myself that I know I'll never have heard of and that I also know I will enjoy thoroughly, right? Like Low, like the band Low, is such a good example yes. of like something that I just never heard of him, loved it. Well, give me one weird book, music, poetry recommendation that we can all kind of pursue. Uh, I'll give two. I'll give one, one Goyish and one, one Jewish. This one kind of came up at a party over the weekend turned out that I know a few people who have read it. The Mario Vargas Llosa novel, The War of the End of the World, which is like about 850 pages long, so it's like, it's not a quick read. Um, that book explains like like everything about the entire 21st century. Uh, it's, it's a sort of historical fiction novel about a real event that happened in Brazil in the 1880s, uh, where a mysterious... Uh, and still quasi anonymous. People don't know who this guy was. Uh, basically, this this guy claimed that he was like the risen Christ or something, and rounded up thousands of followers, mostly from like the Brazilian lower classes, to demand that the emperor be restored to power. So this was a kind of like populist. Now we would consider it right wing kind of uprising from below, uh, and the entire novel is about uh, you know it, it sort of counterposes the rebellion itself and you know, the movement you know the coalesces around this guy with brazilian society's inability to understand it and of course their inability to understand it results in you know horrific bloodshed but the, the book's a ton of fun it's great i actually read it when i was in cairo back in 2013 no, i bought it in cairo oh call back to cairo i love it <laughs> this is a book that has such an impact on me that i remember where i bought it where i read it and it's like when ISIS happened, I thought, ah, well, you know, we're at the end of the world really called this one. And then when Trump got elected, it was like, ah, well, Mario Vargas Llosa really <laughs> sort of understood. I think it was written in the 80s, I think 1980, 1981. It's like the best political novel maybe of the last quarter of the 20th century. Everyone should read it. The, the book, the Jewish book that I scream at people about, although it's kind of fallen a little in my estimation, I think if I reread it, maybe I wouldn't like it as much. But Past Continuous by Yaakov Shabtai. Uh, it's an Israeli novel written in the 70s. Shabtai himself died of a heart attack at a relatively young age, so it's his only novel. And it's basically, this, it's about, God, how to explain what it's about? It's, it's about kind of a group of friends in Tel Aviv in the 70s. And like nothing goes right in these people's lives at all. But from that, you, you, know, you meet their relatives, uh, you meet their entire families, you find out how they wound up in Israel. It's this very kind of like almost elegiac treatment of kind of the death of sort of the Israel of the first 20 or 30 years of the state. And it captures a moment where it was becoming, the country was becoming some other thing that nobody quite entirely understood. It's kind of the great novel of like the Ashkenaz, the Israeli Ashkenazi, more or less. 
it's the great work of literature about the Jews that made it from like Poland, you know, to, to Palestine sometime in the 30s. The great novel about the Jews who didn't make it from Poland to Palestine or anywhere in the 30s uh, is Chava Rosenfarb's The Tree of Life, which is unbelievable. It's like, it's hard. It's hard reading. It's over, a th- it's like 1,200 pages long. It's split into three volumes. Uh, she's a survivor of the Loge Ghetto, wrote it in Yiddish after immigrating to Canada in the 70s. Basically, it traces the lives of 10 residents of the Loge Ghetto from you know, 1930, New Year's Eve, 1938 and 1939, until pretty much literally the gates of Auschwitz. Every kind of character. I mean, there's a Bundist, there's a communist, uh, you know, there's the ex-Hasid who becomes a poet. There's the, uh, you know, the Jewish industrialist who, you know, sees himself as kind of one of the leaders of the community, and, uh, you know, wants to write a history of the Jews of Loge. There's the really slimy Jewish industrialist who, you know, only wants to survive the war. It's amazing. It's really, really good. If I had to like basically pick, you know, the question of like who is like the hero of the Holocaust, it's like a weird, weird, right, very right. gross question in some ways. But you know, it might be it might be Chava Rosenfarb. But, like she is actually, she actually managed. You know, in the midst of like incredible personal pain, I mean, a lot of the book is probably just incidents that she actually saw. Uh, you know, transcribed into, into a novel. You know, she was able to create this unbelievable uh, kind of eternal memorial to, to what actually happened. But very few people have read it, unfortunately. Uh, Dara Horn loves it. That's how I, you know, I learned about it from her. Uh, you know, there's one edition of the English translation put out by University of Wisconsin Press. Constantly shocked that it's not known more widely. But it also, it's obvious why it isn't known more widely. It's just too much for people to, to handle. The true story of what happened in the Holocaust is too much for people to handle, which again is a something that I got from Dara Horn and Cynthia. Like, it's not an original thought of mine, but it's, you know, it's true. It's hard to look into the abyss. Yes. Well, I, I think it's appropriate to go out on a profound note like that. Armin, this has been absolutely unbelievable. Thank you so much for being here. This is fantastic. Well, we, have, we haven't even gotten to the Parsha yet, so we got to, you know, next time. <laughs> if there's a next time. <laughs> I know. Well, this is absolutely a part one. I mean, they, you, I'm, I'm already in advance conscripting you into a part two, so I'm really, fantastic. really excited for that. And I just <laughs> invited myself back on in the middle of this podcast. Yes, I love it. Amazing. That was very chutzpahdick, but it seems to have worked. I mean, you crushed it, so. Wow, thanks. <laughs> excited for next time. <laughs> Every minority, every ethnic or religious subgroup has its own internal conversations. And often in the modern age, that's resulted in specialized journalistic outlets, Jewish newspapers, Christian TV stations, Muslim journals. But just as fascinating are journalists, are reporters, are writers who take their particular identity and use it as a lens through which to help general audiences view the world. What indeed does it mean for a reporter who's Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist to write for The Atlantic or Business Insider, to do original reporting in Ukraine or Somalia or Syria? If there's one thing to take away from today's episode, I hope, therefore, that it's the importance of having a worldview, a worldview. The world is so wild, wonderful, and varied, but all of that beauty kind of blends in on itself, just becomes various shades of undifferentiated grays without an anchor in some sort of tradition. 
So finding that tradition, finding that anchor, far from being a barrier to truth-seeking, is something that helps you find the truths worth finding and helps those truths enrich your life in a serious way. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.